Folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. And life is not always peaceful, especially if you're a professional artist. You have to know your instrument, hone your sound, be a leader and a teammate at the same time, and find places to play that believe in the profession of music. That it is not a pay-to-play game. That music is to be felt, not for pacification. Playing music of the soul is not for the faint of heart, to lose yourself or see yourself from the outside looking in. Not being worried about being micromanaged, playing free and escaping whoever, whatever's going on in your life. You never get old or young again. You can only live in the moment with gold-plated teeth and a smile from ear to ear. I can dream the dream of breathing without thinking while still holding a dialogue with those who carry the stories of our musical ancestors. Al Cooper, an honor to welcome you to the Jake Feinberg Show. Uh, I'm proud to be here. You know, I just, I I have to ask you right off, um, when did you first connect with Don Ellis? I think 68, maybe. And how did it come, how did it, I mean, because Don was like, he was like going up to the Golden Lion with Wavy Gravy and Jackie Byer doing like uh, poetry and jazz improv, and I just wasn't sure. Oh, I was was a fan. I had uh, uh, a couple of his albums. Time that I was uh, 14, I started going to jazz clubs, and uh, uh, luckily I could get in because they let underage people in at Birdland in New York, which is the club that I used to go to initially. And not only could you get in, but um, the the young people had to sit in the first four rows. <laughs> the peanut gallery, yeah, I dig, yeah. So when I got older... Uh, I still said I was underage because you didn't show you didn't have to show proof of underage. I religiously saw uh, all these people I'm going to mention: uh, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, Horace Silver, uh, John Coltrane. That's just off the top of my head. Uh, but uh, uh, Maynard Ferguson, um, is that enough? It's absolutely it. I mean, what I, I guess more to the point, did you have not aspirations, but did you idolize these guys? Did you try to? Were you? A f- I idolized them, but um, it was uh, mostly beyond my abilities. But it certainly influenced the hell out of me. Talk about as a as a player. uh, Horace Silver played very funky blues music, especially in his solos, and uh, and I would learn his solos and play them. And uh, uh, so this was a big influence on me this time period but but I do I remember playing but I was a, a guitar player uh, mostly until uh, the like a Rolling Stone session and then I became famous for being an organ player so uh, I, I ended up being an organ player first time that I played uh, organ on a serious record, other than demos. That time I was a songwriter, and I worked uh, every day writing songs with uh, two other guys. We were a team. And uh, the most famous thing we wrote was uh, This Diamond Ring by Gary Lewis. But... uh, but that's what I was doing. And so I, I, I knew people, and uh, uh, I became friends with Tom Wilson, and he invited me to a, a Bob Dylan session. And so I went, and, uh, and there were 
hoarding, and they moved the uh, organ player to piano and took a break because uh, uh, they uh, they had to reset up mics and stuff. And I said, oh, well, here's a chance for me. <laughs> and, uh, and they had left the organ turned on, which was very good because it's very difficult to turn a Hammond organ on. It's a three-step process. And if you don't know what you're doing, there's no chance that you can do it. Right. And uh, and so the organ was turned on, so I sat down, and I don't think it was visible from the booth, from the, the control booth, uh, that I was sitting at the organ. And uh, so there's actually, it must be on one of those, uh, uh, you know, uh, latter-day, uh, CDs where they have you know every take of every song all the outtakes yeah totally yeah so I think it was take four and uh, uh, and that's when I went out there they took a, a break after take three and uh, and the organ was turned on I said oh this is good but I went to that session uh thinking that I would play guitar. And so I brought my guitar and, um, and I left it out in the studio in the case. And, uh, and then everybody came in and so I couldn't really sit. And, and Dylan and, uh, Mike Bloomfield came in while I was sitting there uh, warming up on the guitar. And Mike Bloomfield sat down and uh, plugged in and started warming up. And I said, I'm screwed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah. So I took the guitar, put it back in the case, and put it against the wall, and went back in the control room where I belonged. And they took a break after take three, after everyone had learned the song and done three takes. I went back out, uh, and they had also moved the organ player to piano. And I went to the organ, and it was still turned on, so I said, oh, this is good. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> and then they they started doing... Uh, uh, you know, everybody came back from the break, and it's it's recorded. Uh, Tom Wilson says, "Okay, this is take four. Uh, hey, what are you doing out there?" <laughs> and and everybody, including the uh, the band, starts laughing. And Tom Wilson starts laughing. He says, "Okay, here we go. This is take four. You let it go. That is Which, such... I was just I mean, going to ask you that. In yeah. my life, that moment in my life changed my life forever. Can you just talk to the audience a little bit about um, Mike Bloomfield? And I don't mean in the sense of uh, people know him. Um, I didn't know him. No, what I'm saying is... I, nev uh, I never heard of him. No, but later on, you guys did an, an iconic album with Skip Propeck and the dear bassist John Kahn. So over time, the thing is, it just it bothers me greatly how Michael Michael's deteriorated in his life. I wasn't sure if you knew him towards the end because I, I mean, knew him the, I knew him from that day on. Because you know who wanted that gig with Bloomfield? He told me in his interviews, "Rest in peace," is, was Larry Coryell. <laughs> and and so well, I wanted what gig with Bloomfield? He wanted I'm sorry, he wanted the Dylan gig. Uh and Bloomfield got it. So I mean that was Bloomfield was really an incredible cat and I just I was wondering if you had closure with him before he he passed on because I mean the guy was so legendary. He 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 just would come no, out we stayed we stayed friends from those sessions on. We were 
friendly. We visited each other. We spent time together. We just were never in a band together. Do you remember how it came to be that the two of you did that epic show at the Fillmore West uh, live show? I mean, because you we did it to promote the album Super Session. Really? Okay, that makes sense. Well, that makes sense. That got recorded uh, as well, though, and it's fantastic. And then, well, it made sense to record it because uh, Super Session was a, uh, a hit, and I and I, I said to him. Uh, why don't we play some live gigs and record them? Because it's be much more fun than sitting in the studio. And he said, "That's great. Let's do that." But he was uh, um, he was secretive about his heroin use. That's right. I never knew about that. I never saw him do that, and so it it, it was never in my face. Do you remember uh, when you first connected? Well, I want to read you this quote from a dear, I'm not I'm sure, I hope you still connect with him, is Harvey Brooks. He said, I started going to the city with Al Cooper. At first, we were just kind of playing local things, and then Al started to get little demo projects in the city. And then we kind of split up for a little bit. He did his thing, I did mine, and I got a call from him. I was playing at a club in the city, and he said, quote, I snuck he said, I, this is his quote, I sn- this about you. He said, uh, I snuck onto a Dylan session. We need a bass player. To be honest, I didn't know who Dylan was. Uh, at that time, I wasn't aware. I was playing some other kinds of music. I said, sounds great. Sounds like a great opportunity. I'll be there. I was there that day. I met Albert Grossman, and Cooper introduced me to Dylan, and I did the album. From that album, that's where I met Mike Bloomfield, Bobby Gregg, That was kind of my introduction to pop music. Dylan's communication was playing the song. Here's how the song goes. Let's record it. Is do you can you talk about when you first connected with Harvey Brooks? Well, we were little kids. We lived around the corner from each other, and uh, when we started playing music, uh, we would get each other onto whatever gigs we would get. Know what I mean? Yeah, you would have, exactly, you'd look out for each other. Yeah. And, and so uh, he got he got me a lot of gigs. And we played, uh, like we played, um, must have been the 64 World's Fair in New York. We, we had a gig playing in some amusement park. Oh, at this the is, World's Fair. This was a was. Do you have a name for the? Was it like the 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 Cooper Brooks band? What was the band? Oh, it didn't matter. <laughs> I, I don't remember. I did. But we just played cover stuff because that's what you did in those days. So we just played, you know, uh, uh, music that we liked that was famous, and uh, and we played. Uh, at the World's Fair at an amusement park that was on premises. And uh, I played there all summer. And, you know, and, and, and we made pretty good money. Was it like and, uh, was it like Hank Ballard and the Midnighters or Fats Domino? What was the big hits of, that you were... I mean, I can't see you guys playing Kingston Trio uh, tunes. No, we played with, you know, rock and roll songs that were on the charts. We were like a cover band. And then ultimately, um, he, you got him into that, Dylan? Is that an accurate thing? You, I mean, you didn't sneak in. You were invited to that session, but then you got... You Only need, to watch. Only to watch. And then you, they needed a bass player on the same session, and you called Harvey. No, when, when the session was over, uh, uh, I said to, uh, it was just Dylan and Bloomfield and myself and we sat and talked and uh, and I said to Dylan I said I, I can get you a, a really good bass player uh, and uh, and he said that would be great 
And I, I've, who played drums on uh, Highway 61? Oh, that is a, okay. Let me just give me a minute on that. That's a great question. I should know that too. But, but, I, yeah. but I brought I brought Harvey, and and he let me bring Harvey, and Harvey uh, um, immediately uh, fit in. Let me look this up here. I didn't think that, that <clears throat> Harvey would embarrass me. Sam, uh, let's see, Sam Lay, or is that does that sound? No way. No, no way. There was no Sam Lay. Yeah, that's this. No way, Sam Lay. Right, yeah, that was. Uh, yeah, no, Harvey. I mean, you know, this is the issue because you guys were playing the, going back to when you and Harvey were just playing the World's Fair, and um, obviously exactly. you. You had a trap drummer. You had a tra you had a trap set drummer. But can you just like when you when you went to the new uh, when you played Forest Hills with Dylan? Because Harvey was talking about that that gig and even Newport Folk Festival. Is it fair to say that there had never been a trap set in a folk setting before that? And uh, there had never been what. There had never been a tr a trap set like a drum set. Oh, sure, there have. Okay, because because the lore again, I'm I'm just a mere forty three year old journalist, but the lore is that Alan Lomax and Albert Grossman almost came to blows over the fact that there was a drum kit on the stage in Newport. No, that Bob Dylan was using that. Not that there was a drum set. There have been many drum sets on stage at Newport. It was more about electrified music, right? Not even that. But Bob Dylan being electric was controversial. That's right. That's right. Just just Dylan. You're saying just Dylan. There was nobody else other than him. No, there are other people that, that played electric, but they always did. Like, for instance, any of the blues singers like Jimmy Reed, or uh, uh, any uh, any of the Muddy Waters, uh, if they played, uh, nobody uh, booed. That's what they did. So it wasn't the drums that were forbidden. It was uh, Bob Dylan having electric guitars and drums that was not liked by uh, Dylan fans of that moment. Very well articulated. Thank you, you were there. I mean, is it fair to say that the the the, the session that Tom Wilson got you on, um, Dylan didn't, had... didn't get me on it. I'm sorry, he invited you He it. invited you to it. He invited me to watch. He invited you to watch. Not to play. I get, no, I, but Dylan at that point had not ventured out in an electric setting. You were the first group, uh, that Forest Hills gig, Bobby Gregg couldn't make the gig. It was Bloomfield, you, and Robbie Robertson and Harvey. That was the first time that Dylan plugged in? It wasn't Robbie Robertson, it was uh, Bloomfield. Thank you, th thank you very much. Bloomfield... Um, Bloomfield was playing with the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. Exactly. And that's probably who played drums. The drummer. Dennis Witted, maybe? No. That was not his name. Uh, yeah. well, whoever played drums on the first uh, Butterfield album. Um, but, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. No, it does I mean, just I'm curious about, like, um, if you... If you knew... Or when the first time you crossed paths with Wavy Gravy? What does Wavy Gravy have to do with anything? Well, because you moved into Greenwich Village, and uh, the Gaslight Theater was the host to so many. I mean, not not that you were gigging there, but Wavy was opening for all these incredible cats, and Ramblin' Jack Elliott was down there. I'm just, I mean, Harvey also talked you, you about... Have, you have a, a, um, a certain amount of misinformation. The Gaslight was not a theater or a club. It was a bar. 
Okay. Yeah, and Wavy would do stand-up poetry, and then he'd be followed by guys like Coleman Hawkins. So, it, I mean, there was no, a lot... No, no, there wasn't... It was a bar. There was no music in it. I went there every night. Um, well... Trust me. I, no, and I... No, there was no music in the gaslight. No folk music? No, no, any music. It was a bar. All right. Well, I mean, I because it's not a big deal. It's I, I I've just talked to Ramblin' Jack. I've talked to a bunch of cats who played there, and and then ultimately, by the seventies, the early incarnation of Weather Report were playing in there. I mean, but it, it no. mean. <sighs> okay, whatever you say. Can you talk about <clears throat> um, what you think over time? I mean are the best qualities of leadership on the bandstand and, and maybe who was somebody that you learned either what not to do or what to do on the bandstand in terms of good leadership? Uh, nobody talked about it. It just happened. Okay. But what is that? What is, I mean, so it was nonverbal, but can you give an example of, of leadership on the bandstand? I, I don't think of it like that. We just, you know, a band uh, was what it was. It either had a leader or it was, uh, you know, disproportionate. And uh, and that's how it was. So, for instance, like, I, the, I sent you a few interviews, and I, I don't expect that you listen to them, but Vinnie Caliuta, the Christopher Morris band, Rodney Justo with the Candymen, they, I'm, I have direct quotes from them talking about how you s sought out those cats and said, I really think your music is fantastic. So maybe the better question is, what is, how, why were you, how were you such a good talent scout at that time? I mean, it's been well documented. All those cats were like, based... Oh, well, I just signed what I liked, which is what any A&R man did. They certainly... You know, uh, uh, sometimes I w at Columbia when I first started, I was asked to do uh, things, and I I did them. Uh, but as I did them, I said, "Well, I d I don't think I'll do anything like this again. This is not right for me." And so I very quickly absolved myself of things like that. Can you talk about some of the keys? I mean, I to me, it's like, you know, maybe it's just a natural thing. Um, but in terms of like, what was intoxicating for you about stuff that you would do, that you would do as a producer, that you would say, I want to keep doing this stuff, especially in the mid to late sixties. You know what? What were you? Was it? Uh, was it more lyric? Was it lyrics based? Was it? Um, Groove based or all of the above. I mean, Christopher Morris band. I mean, Kaliuta. That that is a very. It, I mean, like for instance, just take that band. What was it? They were playing out in Cape Cod. What was it about that group that was fascinating? Well, I lo I loved uh, uh, Chris Morris. I thought he was a great singer, and the the whole band was uh, pretty good. And so uh, I signed them. And I produced them. Were you somebody, when you put your bands together, that you believe that you, you, you would hire cats? I mean, I remember the story about Coltrane. He would keep coming up to Miles and keep coming up to Miles and say, what do you want me to play? What do you want me to play? And Miles kept turning his back on him. And Train finally realized, well, he wants me to be myself. He wants me to play myself. And so that was nonverbal. In some ways, that's good leadership. But I'm curious, when you would bring cats into your bands, would you bring them in because you wanted them to be I like the way they played. And, uh, and, and, uh, and usually, I led bands. And if I didn't, uh, I helped. Like when I when I played with Dylan, I helped. Could you give an example of help? 
uh, when we would rehearse, I would uh, 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 be uh, the band leader because I was most conversant with the music of anybody in the band. I'm curious about when you say conversant about the music. Now, I mean, I've, I've talked enough with Keltner and Buzzy Feet, and Dylan didn't really communicate. This is way, those people were way after. Right, but Bob's personality, I'm just asking, was it generally the same as that he didn't really talk about the song very much? No. He didn't talk about anything. <laughs> he, just play, he just played it. He just, so you kind of had to be... Um, a translator of sorts, is that right? Well, the best example is Bond on Blonde. Okay. The, the producer was Tennessean, and he wanted uh, Bob to go to Nashville to record. And he kept uh, extolling the virtues of Nashville and the musicians in Nashville. So Bob said, okay, but he brought me. And it was good that he brought me because, A, I knew uh, some of the tunes in advance, and B, uh, I, I became uh, a band leader of sorts. And, uh, and the musicians were... Uh, terrific musicians and very friendly. Geez, the keyboard player was blind. <laughs> yeah, Pig Hargis, right? Yeah. Yeah, oh, I love, dude, and, and Norbert Putnam and all those cats, they're great, man. Yeah, so it was a, a, it was a wonderful experience for me, and they, uh, they let me do that because I was most comfortable with doing and I was the, the only one that he brought there. Yeah, I'm looking here. Kenny Buttry on drums. You played organ and guitar. Some of this stuff looks like it was recorded a little bit in New York, too, because it says Rick Danko and Paul Griffin were on there. But there's Wayne Moss. He's well, no, no, no. Um, uh, Robbie was there, too. Robbie was and in that, Nashville. Wow. Robbie was on the sessions as well. Matter of fact, we roomed together. Wow. Did you you get a chance to ever uh, hang with Miles or Thelonious at all? (laughs) My Miles Davis story is quite humorous. Please, the floor is yours. When I was working at Columbia, uh... The, uh, they had um, their own studios. And so um, I think you had to work at their studios at that time. That was part of your contract. So um, I was doing some session and the... Uh, Let me make sure I got this right. Oh yeah. So there was a a a, a, a cafeteria on the fourth floor. There were studios on the second and sixth floor. No, the studio was on the first floor. And the uh, cafeteria was on the second floor. And then there was other studios on the fourth floor. This was on 40-something Street uh, in New York City. And so so you could have somebody working on the the first floor and somebody else working on the, uh, the upper floor. And you, you wouldn't necessarily bump into them, and you certainly wouldn't hear their music. So, uh, 
went up to the cafeteria and uh, there was a, a woman sitting there and I asked her a question. I forget what it was at the moment. It's probably in my book. And she gave me an answer and, uh, and I went back to the studio and was working and about an hour later the, uh, one of the people that worked at the studio uh, handed me a note that said to, to Al Cooper please read this five times <laughs> <laughs> I said what's this and I opened it up and it said Please do not ever speak to my wife again. Oh, my. Miles Davis. Oh, my God. <laughs> Read this six times. Oh, that is unbelievably classic. And so this sort of went on where there was, the, like, there was this hate thing going on between him and me. Although I, I, it wasn't, it wasn't between us. It was him against me. And then uh, one day I was uh, playing at the Bitter End in New York, a club in the Village, playing so solo but with a, a, a four-piece band backing. And I, 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 we played a set, and we went in the dressing room, and Miles Davis walked in the dressing room. My heart started beating. <laughs> yes. Like, I, like, if he had seen the show, he was going to come over and punch me in the face. <laughs> but you weren't talking to his wife? No. No. When I was playing music, he probably despised. I think he was hip to... He, he was walked, hip, yeah. He walked right up to me. And he said, uh, I really enjoyed that. That's said, so hip, man. I said, thank you so much. <laughs> and then he left. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was the end of that. I mean... <clears throat> You know, just something popped into my head. You brought up Horace Silver before. Did you, um, did you recruit, or how did you first connect with Randy Brecker? Was he because he was in Horace's band? Uh, not to not at a time that I ever saw him. <clears throat> I'm curious. So that back. I saw these. I I went to Birdland in. Uh, well, I was 14, so I was born in 44. You were like 50, so you were like 58 years, it was like 1958. It was the pro, the height of, that was the greatest time for jazz of, of all time. Yeah. Right. So, so I'd go there then. And, uh, uh, and, uh, they're, they're, you know, in the jazz period, there was no Randy Brecker. Absolutely, you're right. No, he he was with Horace like ten years later. Uh, I'm just curious when you said you had a. Well, I mean, he was when 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 I auditioned him to be in the band, he was nobody. He was uh, not famous at all. Do you... if he played with anybody? I didn't know about it. Were you were you hip to the to the uh, folk singer on Electra, uh, Judy Hensky? I knew her, yeah. Because she told me uh, that her backing band at the bitter at the Village Gate at one point was Herbie Hancock, Ke uh, Keeter Betts. Uh, they were jazzers backing up a folk singer, which is very hard to believe. I was just wondering. When you when Miles saw you, who was in your backing band? Um, oh, I can't remember his name. Billy something. Um, 
somebody was the drummer. He was a great drummer. Great drum, Billy. Did he did he stick around for a while, or was he, was he kind of? Well, he played with somebody else. I can't I can't remember who. No problem. But uh, and, and uh, when I when I look when I went looking for people from Blood Sweat and Tears, I, I went looking primarily for horn players. I would love you to talk about how you recruited Louis Soloff, Randy. Did you just were you just checking them out at like the Blue Cornet, or did you? I mean, I don't think Brecker was well, really. Louis Soloff wasn't in the band when I, when I was in the band. Randy was. Randy was. How did like for instance like did you you didn't do go off just repu- word of mouth? I mean, he was like you said basically nobody at that point. You you saw him at a club. Do you remember how you you recruited those cats? No, I auditioned people. You auditioned them. I did. That's what I did because I had no experience with um, uh, horn players that were allegedly my age. Who was who was the horn line? The first unit horn line, the first generation horn line in Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Uh, the first Blood, Sweat, and Tears album. Um. A long time ago, it's you know, it's fifty or sixty years ago. Absolutely, years. I mean, I, I'll, 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 I'll look it up. You know, two more questions for you. I just, I'm. But I mean, the answer to those questions is that the child is father to the man. The personnel on that record was the original personnel of Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Absolutely, absolutely. By the way, who came up with the title of that album? I, I don't remember. <laughs> Okay. I'm sure I was involved. I mean, it's a beautiful. It, I, it's one of my. Because I was, I was, uh, I was the leader, and uh, when we made the album, uh, and we went on the road and toured the first album. And by the end of that tour, they had, uh, behind my back, decided to uh, get rid of me. So that was the end of that, after the first tour. Can you tell me about your relationship with Bill Graham? Always good. Really good. Loved him. Did you... Great, great guy. Did you, do you know, because obviously you you guys, much later on, you and Bloom, Bloomfield, to promote the Super Session album, you played at the Fillmore West. Do you remember... Was oh, Blo- I played, I played, you know, every Fillmore there was. Absolutely. In whatever context I was in at the time. I'm just curious about if, if you the the first time you played the Fillmore East was with Blood, Sweat, and Tears, or was it with your own one of your own bands? I'm trying to think if there was a Fillmore East when I was in Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Graham to me was like such a brilliant dude, and obviously a hard nosed guy to to a degree, but he also it was all about the music, and I just you know. We missed well, that. Well, he started something that was gigantic. Insane. And it was his idea. There was nothing like that before him. And he was a, a, a good, tolerable guy. I liked him a lot. You had a chance to, because there, there was a, there was a stipulation with the Fillmore East that nobody could play within a fifty-mile radius of that venue, and the closest venue was actually my hometown of Stony Brook, New York. I, I have to believe you guys played that small gym out there in Stony Brook. I have no idea. Uh, it's fine. <clears throat> no, it's fine. The, the 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 two things that I was really blown away with doing my research was the fact that 
Um, well, I just wanted you to talk about the Atlanta rhythm section, your memories of working with that band, Robert Nix, Paul Goddard. Yeah, yeah, Dean, I know. I mean, did you meet them? You, I know you met Rodney with the Candymen, but when did you get, because that, this is the most, to me, there are, you know, you have the student. The Atlanta rhythm section was the Candymen. It was the Candymen. Yes. So that's how I met them. They played in New York a few times, and I got friendly with them. And so when I moved to Atlanta, and I moved to Atlanta because uh, I loved the studio that they worked in. Studio Ones? Yes. Wow. Buddy Buddy Bowie. Bowie is correct. Buddy Bowie, that's right. So, So you... This had you was was that studio was on your radar, but you were excited to move. No, I worked at that studio before I moved there. Wow! I did an album there uh, of my backup band. That's a very obscure album and is out of print. What's the name of the album? The Sweetheart Sampler, and the uh, van was called Frankie and Johnny. Oh my! And and you you do your backup your back. Who was in that band? Uh, Frankie Rabando. You, you won't know any of them. I, I, but no, but this is where the rubber. I mean, these are the unsung cats. But you you said I mean they were just your 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 buddies from from the east from New York area. Well, you're mixing up the Candymen and and my. Backup band. Right, no, you said you had been to that studio prior to moving to Atlanta with your backup band, and I just want to know the cats in that band. In my backup band? Yeah. Uh, Well, like I said, I got them a deal on Warner Brothers. And they had no name. But but, uh, with me not involved in being in the group... Uh, I called them Frankie and Johnny. Right. And so, and 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 we called the album the Sweetheart Sampler. I got to. I mean, that is fa- so. You went down to that studio. You 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 love the acoustics of it, and then you wound up moving to Atlanta to. What was? No, but first, first I went and recorded Frankie and Johnny there for about a month. Right. And we made this great album. I still have the album. I mean, uh, uh, I, I I put it from tape to my computer because it's a great album. I'm and looking I, at it right here. I mean, it's not, <coughs> it's, I have never seen it, although it does not appear to be overly expensive album, but this is phenomenal, man. I've never seen it. Where did you, where did you where, how can you see it? Well, I just I'm, I'm I'm looking on a on the computer here. Frankie and Johnny, the sweetheart sampler, Al Cooper, um, and I'm looking at the at the at the the cover of the vinyl, at, and I'm just looking for the I'm trying to find all the personnel in it. Well, the cover of the album was why it never came out. <laughs> <laughs> Explain that to me. I, I'm I can't really see everything in detail. Well, it was like. Uh, it was like uh, there was a, a box of candy put out by Whitman right. called the Sweetheart Sampler. And because the group was called Frankie and Johnny, I thought, well, that would be a great cover and a great name for the album. Know what I mean? I do. I do. But... I guess the Frankie and Johnny were sweethearts. <laughs> how did you know they were? How were you connected with them originally? Were they part of the your your writing? They were my back. They were my backup band. Interesting. Okay, so they. Were, wow. Wow. Yeah. Don't tell Ma. That's up on YouTube. Uh, oh really? Yeah. That's very uh, uh, bandish. A very bandish type tune. Yeah, like something uh, Robbie would have done. <laughs> this is Frankie and Johnny. So then you met, so, okay. 
And you had already established yourself as a band leader, producer. Um, did you get a formal invite to come down to Atlanta? What was? Can you just talk about going down there? And, and you already knew all the guys in the Atlanta rhythm section, but... Um, yes, that's one of the reasons I went down there. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I moved down there, and, uh, and I started hanging out uh, in a club that it turned out was owned by a guy I went to summer camp with when I was a kid. In upstate New York? Huh? Where was the summer camp? You know, somewhere in... You know, we're summer camps. Are. Well, no, I mean, I, I, I spent 14, essentially 14 years of my life, uh, two months uh, every year in, in, in the Catskills at a, at a Jewish summer camp. But that, I just love that, that, that you what went. Was, what was it called? It was called Scatico. Oh, okay. Didn't go to that one. <laughs> there were a lot. I know Blumenfeld went to a red diaper camp, too, you know? Yeah, so did I. I <laughs> Yeah, so you so they were they were uh continue, please. The guy who owned the club went to your summer camp in Atlanta. Yes. Wow. Uh but I didn't know that. So I went I went to the club cuz I heard about it. And uh and I saw him and uh and we started talking and we found you know that we went back. And uh, and so that was interesting, and so it made it very easy for me to go to that club. So I would go there every night. Can we get the uh, the the name of the club? Was what? I can't remember. Oh man! You have the guy. It's it's in my book. Okay, and and you remember the cat's name at all or no? No. Okay. So anyway, you you felt great. It was a good vibe, and you went there. And saw a bunch. You saw a lot of the local live acts. What? That, that, well, they had they had a lot of local bands, and then they had you know other bands, but they were they were primarily unknown. So, but they played six nights a week. That was the thing. So you came in and you played for six nights, and then you were gone. And I think you played three sets a night. That's incredible. I mean, that that's the coolest part about that time is that, you know, not necessarily Al Cooper, but if Jake Feinberg was there, you know, I tell my friends, they come back the second night. Pretty soon you get this huge momentum. The band's getting tighter. And, you know, it's just so transient today in that, you know, you do 30 shows in 32 days in 30 different cities, you know, where cats would just camp out for six days, three sets a night, and, you know, and you'd actually build up a fan base. And that was happening all over the place. I mean, Blakey would go to the to the jazz, uh, yeah, to the jazz workshop in San Francisco and play for two weeks straight. You know, I mean, to me, like, that is, was one of the elements of, of well, just... Well, Birdland was like that. They'd play for a week. You, did you know? Did you ever know the owner of Birdland, Jewish Mafia Cat? Not really, no. Yeah, no, that dude was fascinating. So, did you did you actually discover uh, uh, Leonard Skinner at that club? Well, they played there for a week. Um, uh, by the third night, I went and sat in with him for a song, and the last night. I offered to sign him. Was there... And I did. No, I mean, to me, that is just really completely one of the coolest things I've... Uh, that I... of your resume that I think gets overlooked a little bit. If there was one thing that stood out to you about them as an A&R guy, quote-unquote, what was it that that you were getting off on. I mean, it was, they, what's well, they funny. Were, they, yeah. were, they were very original. Given, given, as opposed to original, as opposed to other regional bands, or just bands, what were they doing that was different? What they did. I can't, I can't really put it into words as much as I could, as I could say, listen to them. Nobody did that. 
Tell me about your, um, like... And they were, I mean, and it was, you know, it was ridiculous. They had three guitar players. Nobody had three guitar players. (laughs) And it was just, it was, the arrangements were fantastic. I'm just trying to think about anything comparable, like... Did, did you get to, did you ever, go, so you've been to Nashville, uh, you know, you, you went, did you ever get to Capricorn Studios? I mean, I think Marshall Tucker was recording out of there, but Skinner maybe was. The they fir- signed Skinner before I saw them. Say that one you more time. No, say, who signed, who signed them? The, the, uh. The studio, Muscle Shoals. Oh, Muscle, not, so not Capricorn, Muscle Shoals. Well, um, it was probably Muscle Shoals because they went to record their Skinner. Okay, so, uh, mu- to, yeah. To make demos and stuff. Maybe Rick Hall, so so they they made some demos. So at, Rick Hall yeah. uh, uh, either tried to sign them or sign them, but it didn't work out. And then they were just cutting it up at this bar in Atlanta, and you were like, I'm, we're signing them, and you brought them in. And do, do you, I'm just curious about, like... I didn't know about Muscle Shoals. Right. I just, I just heard a band, thought they were great. I heard them six nights in a row. And I signed them. I thought they were great. There's no doubt in my mind. Well, I mean, it clearly, you were clearly right on the pulse of it. I'm just wondering if you, when you got them into that studio in Atlanta, <clears throat> were you one of those cats that um, no baffles, drop a couple, of, maybe put a couple of my overhead mics on the drums? No, I, no, 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 there was separation. There was, that's what, yeah. but, I mean... Uh, you you did that because you didn't want stuff to bleed into another mic. No, I I mean I like a little leakage once in a while. I mean the the, the Dylan says well, well with when you have three guitars you don't want leakage into the piano. You're absolutely right, right about that. You're absolutely right. Okay, so uh, remember I loved this studio. I thought it was a great studio. And the engineer was great. And now the band was great. So, how could I miss? And also I had all their, uh, you know, their, their songs. Who was the, I'm just curious about like, you said the arrangements were fantastic. I mean, did you, yeah. I mean, who was the, so, I mean, it's just, it's so remarkable. And I agree with you the the they are great. Um, did you feel like, what were your major contributions to that? Was it Rodney Mills who was doing the engineering? Rodney Mills was the engineer on the first album, yeah. Wow. And what did you feel like you brought to that? I mean, those records, those early records are iconic. I mean, you know, and, and ironically enough, at our Jewish summer camp, that was those were the tunes being pumped out of the bunks every day. Those Leonard Skinner tunes, people loved Skinner. Um, well, I'm, you know, this doesn't surprise me. I, I went nuts, <laughs> Dude, but I had yeah. to contain it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and Ronnie Vincent was very tough to work with because he was the boss. When you get somebody like, I just think it's important for younger cats, my generation and younger, you're working with a guy very heavy handed, used to being, used to being the leader, but yet needs to be told something that they don't necessarily want to hear. Can you talk about how you, uh, balance that? Uh, I would I would suggest things. And just sort of let it sit with them and see if they picked up on it. Yeah. 
Also, uh, Ed King, who was in the band, yes, uh, had been in a band that had hits, which was uh, Strawberry Alarm Clock. Oh wow! So he already okay. So he knew what was radio friendly to a degree. No, no, he he had had the experience of, of being in a band that had a top record. And he was a little older. Right, so he, he was, people, they, they, he, he got them to listen to him a little bit too. No. No, you could not supplant Ronnie Van Zandt. <laughs> Good rhyme. <laughs> yeah, so he was immovable. But, how do, but I mean, I guess the, the point, I mean, how do you not let a session fall apart like that if he's completely wrong about stuff? Well, they were very right about stuff. Right. That's the key. My suggestions were comparatively small. And you, and I just want to be clear, you said you sat in with them, too. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you mean the first week? Exactly, yeah, the, in, in the bar in Atlanta. That's just remarkable. Yeah, well, they didn't have a keyboard player, so there was no keyboard on stage, so I played guitar. And one of the things I remember vividly is I, I got up and I put my guitar on, and I said, what are we doing? And he said, Mean Women Blues in C-sharp. <laughs> And I laughed out loud because that would be a way to get a a, a, a shitty guitar player off stage. <laughs> right, exactly. And I immediately understood that. And I said, C-sharp is fine. And that's what we played. Before I let you go, Mr. Cooper, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about a, a guy that I've seen live recently before COVID. Um, really one of the most humble dudes I've ever come across in my life. And he makes it look singing and playing the drums so easy. And he's been through a lot in his life, but he's, I just wanted you to talk about what you love about Roy Blumenfeld's, you know, style as a, a musician and, and, and sort of his, what he brought to the blues project. He's a, he's a great, he was a great drummer. He still is a great drummer. He's incredible still, man. And he can sing and, too. And, uh, uh, and he's also a, a soft-spoken, nice guy. So you can't really beat that. And I went and played um, blues project reunions uh for quite a while and just to play with um, uh, him and Andy Colbert yeah yeah because they were they were a great rhythm section did you meet, <laughs> in the blues project did you meet Roy down in, do you remember how you connected with him originally or how you settled on him as, as the drummer in the blues project mm-hmm the Blues Project already existed. I, I think I was the last person to join. Okay, so you got in later, yeah. And what was, you know, um, we just lost him recently, but, you know, you you, uh, you have any memories? or I, I? It's hard for me to really know because apparently he kind of, had some psychological things going on, but, you know, could you just talk about your memories of Danny Kalb? Well, he was an amazing guitar player. There are, there are things he did I never heard anybody do to this day. Wow. And when I, when I had um, uh, Skinner and I had my own label, uh, I went back and, and played uh, Central Park for uh, two days. 
with the Blues Project and recorded it live and, and put out a double album. It's one of my favorite albums, actually. I don't even have a copy. <laughs> I can mail it to you if you want, man. I need a copy of that Frankie and Johnny album. Are you telling me that there were pressings made and then they it never got reissued or it was taken off the market completely? The Frankie and it Johnny. Never, it never came out because uh, wow. I think they went to get permission from uh, Whitman's and, that, and Whitman said no. Wow. And so, so they, they never put it out. They didn't go any further. We've been cooking here for 73 minutes. I'm having a ball, but I do want, I, I want you to check for me or go back in the records and check on this Paul Lenart, who's a genius, brilliant cat, talking about the Bristol Stomp, the Devels. Just let me know if that's even accurate or not. What is the what is the question? <laughs> All right, I'm gonna, I'll uh, I can I'll I'll copy and paste the quote and you can look at it and then check it out. But he's talking. I have to, nothing to do with the Bristol Stomp. Is that part of the thing? Yeah. Well, um, yeah. He said I, he Leonard said he asked you what was going on in the New York music scene when you were trying to get in, and you said I was doing anything I could to get into the music scene. Uh, he, w I was the original guitar player on the Bristol Stomp. That's a lie, and I never said that. Okay, well, I, I don't want you know lies. That's I would ne no, I mean, I would never have said that. Okay, no, I believe you. I believe you know. I, I'm just you know, no, 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 no harm, no foul. He didn't. I don't think he was doing it to be spiteful or anything like that. He just said. I, that, I think he might have mixed it up with something else. Yeah, I'm curious because he goes on. and He says. He again talking about you. I mean, I'm just curious if any of the any session rings a bell. He said they were Cooper was just hanging out with his guitar and they wanted that quote unquote young kid jangly electric guitar. And the guy who was on the session was a jazz player. Who knows? T Tony Matola, who knows what was on that session? He couldn't get that sound out of his amp or his guitar, so Cooper got hired for the gig. That's how he got started in the studio. I would just be curious if it if, if that ever dawns. There was a guy that hired me a lot named Wes Farrell. Wes Farrell. And I played on a lot of sessions for him. And I can't remember too much about him anymore. But he did a lot of stuff. He did a lot of sessions and he hired me a lot. And I played for him. Do you have any, were they like jingles, commercials, or like actual demos? No, or? they were records. Interesting. Well, maybe that's what it is. Who knows? Um, <clears throat> I'm going to send you a whole bunch of excerpts of transcriptions and of, you know, I, I, I'd like to uh, just send stuff along and let you know over the last 12 years that, uh, you know, I've come, buzz, Buzzy Feet and was basically said that you advocated for him to get into or you told butter that buzz buzzy played guitar helped him get into that band he was in bishop's band at the time brooks is effusive in his praise for you obviously and to for this to culminate now 12 years in to be able to to rap with you man it's it's really a high honor and i gotta be honest i it's kind of staggering um you know the kind of well, just the work and the stuff, the, the creations you've made in your lifetime, man. And I, 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 uh, I hope you're at peace and you're happy as be, as much as best you can, man. I'm still alive. I'm happy about that. You'd be safe, man. And uh, let's stay. In, <laughs> I'll get you a copy. No, I, don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't and can't leave the house, so it's not. You know, here I am. Well, if I I'm gonna be up <laughs> in the in the Boston area, I can come by and just shout out your window and say hi. I'd love to just say hi to you. You don't have to come out of the house, but I'll be up there at the end of January to catch some music up there. Well, you can call. Yeah, no, you don't have to come out of the house. I just want to wave wave to you and you know maybe get a copy of that. No, I mean I'm not I'm not contagious. You can come in the house. Great. 
Then I'll call you in a couple. I'll call you. In, I'll call you in a couple weeks. Yeah, just give me you know some advance notice if you want to come over. Oh, I'd love to see you, man. Yeah. All right. Cool. Okay. Hey, much love, Mr. Cooper. Thank you for taking the time, man. It was really an honor. Did you get what you needed? I got way more than whatever I could have possibly imagined, man. It was fan. We did. Okay, it was good. beautiful, man. Thank you, man. Have a beautiful night. I'll be in touch. Okay. Bye. Cheers.